0: What's your little piece of the pie, your little piece of the action as God renews this whole world and makes it good and right again? That's what this parable is about. Why don't you stand up? We will, uh, I'll read it, I'll kind of give you a big picture overview of this, and then we'll zoom in, walk through it, explain it, and be done for the night. And, uh, yeah, so here is Matthew 25. We've raced to the end of the book for tonight's passage. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. And he's describing the kingdom of heaven. He says, The kingdom of heaven or the coming of the kingdom will be like a man who goes on a journey. This is Jesus is the man in the the story. It's like a man going on a journey. He called his servants and he entrusted to them his property. To To the first servant he gave five talents. To another he gave two and to another he gave one. Each according to his own ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. He doubled the investment. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But the one who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of the servants came, and uh, he returned, and he settled up with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, and he brought his five talents more, and he said, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made you five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, so I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here, and I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, so I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had received the one talent came forward and said, Master, I knew your reputation, I knew you to be a hard man or a rough man, a harsh man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you didn't scatter any seed. And so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. So here, take what's yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful or lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming or at my return, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who had the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, be with us now as we look at your word. Overcome my weakness. Be strong. Overcome my confusion and be clear. Overcome our distraction and be compelling, we pray in your name. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks. So another thing that was in the news today, I don't know if you saw it, but President Trump flew to Puerto Rico to tour the damage that had happened about two weeks ago now. Hurricane Maria was a category five storm when it went, the eye of the storm went right over uh, the island of Puerto Rico and uh, destroyed it, like down to like stripping all the trees of their leaves, uh, taking the roofs off all the houses, just destroying all of it, messing the roads up. And uh, the news reports of the past few days have been focused on the suffering in Puerto Rico and the lack of resources that are getting to people. They estimate, even tonight, between like 70 and 90% of the country is still without electricity, cell service, food, water, gas, groceries, all of that stuff. Um, Which equals tens and tens and tens of thousands of people without all of the basics of life. And this is, I think, day 10 or 11 right now without those resources and so the president uh, went there to look at the issue and to be with the people and here's the problem, here's what the news reports have kind of isolated as the problem right now there are pictures of harbors full of gas, food, water, diesel, all the stuff that the people need, there's harbors full of it, like pallet after pallet after pallet of this stuff has been delivered But it's not been delivered to all the little back roads and all the little neighborhoods around Puerto Rico up in the mountains where the people are who actually need it. And there's two reasons for this. The first is there's not enough truck drivers or maybe trucks to pick up the supplies at the harbor and take it to the people. And the second problem is that there's been some hoarding going on of kind of some of the rich ruling class in the capital taking the supplies to their house and holding on to them there. And so because of hoarding and because of a lack of truck drivers delivering the resources people desperately need to the people, uh, there's a ton of resources here and there's a ton of need here. And the two have not yet met. Here's why I tell you this story. It's actually, it's weird to tell you a story to illustrate a story. But Jesus' parable is a little bit far enough removed from us to where maybe it helps a little bit to kind of bring it a little bit more down to earth. Think about it this way, the kingdom of God is about Jesus renewing and rebuilding all that's been destroyed and devastated by the fall, by evil, by corruption. It's him systematically reconstructing all that's been deconstructed, rebuilding and renewing all that's gone bad in people primarily and in his creation all around him. And the king, Jesus himself, has stockpiled and distributed these life-saving resources in his church, which is another word for his people, Christians. Now, the question that this parable raises is, are those resources that he has invested and put in his church, in his people, are they making it out to all of the back roads and all the little homes and neighborhoods that are devastated that are hanging on by a thread. And the reason when those resources don't get from here where he's put them to here where they're needed is some of the same reason uh, that the resources in Puerto Rico aren't getting to those people. Hoarding, which means people who don't understand the strategic role they play in distributing life-saving resources. Does that make sense? Like if you're like a rich person in San Juan and you're like hoarding all these resources, it's selfishness, but it's also you don't understand the potential impact you could have made if you had delivered those resources the way you should have. And the other problem that this parable raises is, are we delivering the investment, the healing resources, the renewing resources, the life-giving gospel, whatever it is, are we delivering that to the places it's needed the devastation all around us. I'll take the metaphor a couple steps further and then we'll look back at the story here. If you're a Christian, you are God's truck driver. You're a lot of things. You're a son, you're his daughter, you're a new creature. You're innocent, you're holy, you're good, you're all of that. But you're his truck driver as well. Which means you are his intended vehicle to take his grace out into the world. To take the resources you've been given, we'll unpack what that means in a minute, but all of the resources you've been given and to deliver them to the world. You're as truck drivers. So the question is, are we aware of our intended role and are we participating in it? Or have we turned aside to hoarding or have we turned aside to just not realizing our role and so we're sitting around with keys and an idle truck while a nation dies or while an island starves or whatever? The other piece, the last piece, and we'll shift back to the actual story, is this. What Jesus is looking for, what he is asking for, what he is calling for from his people, is not success in the way that we usually define it. How many truckloads you deliver to the people, or how how heavy a load is on your trailer that you're taking to people. What he calls for from his people is faithfulness. It's the word that's repeated more than any other word in this parable. You have been faithful with what you've been given. Well done, good and faithful servant. Faithfulness in the story about Puerto Rico would look like simply backing your truck up, hitching it to the resources you've been given, which might be a half full trailer, a full trailer, two trailers, whatever, and driving off. Jesus makes clear in this passage we've all been given different amounts of resources and different resources. He's not looking or calling for the same return from each of you or, or me. He's asking for faithfulness, which again in this metaphor means backing your truck up and delivering whatever is in the trailer, whether it's a ton or whether it's a few pounds. And so let's do this now. Let's shift back to the passage, and I'll ask you to pull it out if you have it and, and follow along with me. Might be a little choppy. This is the, the part where I'll just abandon what I prepared and we'll go ad lib here and read through this together. And keep that story I told you about Puerto Rico in your mind because I think it has a lot of bearing on this. Before we look, the big picture of this parable Jesus is telling is if you're a Christian, you already possess all of the resources you need to make an incredible impact. For his kingdom, to participate in his mission, you already have the resources that you need. And faithfulness, not necessarily success, is what he's looking for. So, let's start at the beginning. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like this, or the coming of the kingdom. It's like a man going on a journey. He's talking about himself. This is almost at the very end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his imminent departure. So he's, he's, he's been alive about 33 years at this point. He's been ministering with these disciples and talking about the kingdom for about three years at this point. He is on his way to Jerusalem. He's just outside Jerusalem on a mountain when he's talking about this. And you know what happens in Jerusalem. The climax of God's rescue. Jesus will die the death we should have died. He will be cursed by God, alienated, pushed off called guilty and punished as someone who's guilty he will die he'll be buried he'll be raised up on the third day people by the hordes will see him and write about seeing him alive after the resurrection and about 40 days later he ascends into heaven and people saw that too and wrote about that too now Jesus is preparing his disciples for well what do you do when I'm gone he's with us in in a very real sense he poured out his spirit with us right if you're a Christian you have the spirit living in you That's the power, that's the driving force of your life is the spirit of Jesus in you. But Jesus in himself, his body, he's not here. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. He's reigning and ruling over all things. He's not here with us the way he was with his disciples. So he's trying to help his disciples think through, well, what are you supposed to do when I'm gone? How do you live? How do you bear fruit when I'm not here? That's what he's talking about. I'm going away on a journey that I will return from and when I return from it I'll be interested in the fruit that you've borne, the the return on the investment I've made in you that's what he's telling his disciples in other words you're to be busy while I'm gone not sitting around idle with nothing to do not unemployed you know um, have you ever seen a mom or a dad go through a season of unemployment it's pretty it's devastating right It's it's more psychological than just financial. It's not so much you just can't get enough money to pay the bills or whatever. You have to downsize stuff. But when you're unemployed, you get depressed, right? You might turn to other addictions or other escapes to dull the pain of feeling listless and aimless and purposeless and useless. Jesus is protecting us against kind of being spiritually unemployed Christians with no sense of what am I supposed to be doing. I don't have anything to do. I don't have a mission. I don't have a job. He's saying, no, 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 no. You have a huge job. And it's a job that should keep us busy. And he's saying that's what he's going to be looking for when he comes back. Now, this other thing he says right after that, notice whose property all of these gifts and these talents, which we get our English word talent from this parable. He's talking about any resources you have, James chapter 1, James writes in his letter, Every good and every perfect gift that you have has a return address on it. It's from the Father of lights. It's from God. So everything has not the little made in China label on it, but the made in heaven for you, given to you freely label on it. Everything you have, your health, your athletic ability, your personality, your ability to make quick friends, your kindness, your generosity, your hospitality, your intellectual ability... Your car, your dorm, your money, your experiences from the past, your education, your interests, your hobbies. All gift. All given to you freely. So when Jesus talks about the gifts that he's entrusted, the property that he has given, he's talking about God's property that's been given to us, shared with us. Which makes a really big difference here. There's a huge contrast. Do we view the stuff we have in our lives through a lens of I'm a steward of all these things God has loaned to me? Or do we view ourselves as the owner of all of these things? If you view yourself as the owner and possessor of all these things, look how hard I worked to get these things. They will enslave you. They're not our things, right? I mean, Jesus says clearly, I gave them to you. They're all mine, and I have lent them to you as a tool to bring a return on my investment in you. But if we see ourselves as the owner of all these things, like, man, my personality is all about Ben. Aren't I awesome? My education, my intellect, my abilities in here or there, whatever. Man, it's all about me. You'll be enslaved to personal success. That will be the metric you judge your life by. And you'll never... You'll never meet that, right? Never. You, you're old enough to know that, right? Probably, I guess, like right around the college years, or maybe a few years before the college years, we begin to realize, I can't meet my own standards for personal success. My personality isn't awesome enough. My way with girls or guys isn't suave or smooth enough. My intellect isn't yielding all A's. until, you, or It is until you get the hard professor. You're beginning to bump up against your limits and realizing, if I'm living for my own success, this is going to be a painful life. Or I'm going to have to lower the standard so I can meet the bar. Jesus says, kind of the paradigm we should have in our lives isn't a personal success paradigm. It's a personal stewardship paradigm. You have been entrusted with certain things, tangible, intangible, cars, personalities, whatever, spiritual gifts. You have been lent them. To yield fruit with them. So that's why he says we have been entrusted. Each of these servants has been entrusted with these talents. The next thing, they've been entrusted with different quantities of these talents. And this is where we get really un-American and and anti-Western. In the West, you're raised to believe. We're raised hearing from mommy and daddy. You can do anything you want if you just put your mind to it, right? Your professors expect that everyone in the class should be able to make an A, right? This is how our entire society is set up. God doesn't buy it. He says, no, no, no. I made you. I've distributed these gifts and these resources in varying amounts. There's a great and a beautiful diversity in the world. And each of us has different amounts and intensities and concentrations of these gifts or just different gifts altogether. Your professor might think that if everyone studies the same amount, you should all make A's. Jesus says, yeah, but some of you have greater intellectual capacity than others. Some of you have greater abilities to focus than others. Some of you have more tranquil or calm family lives than others. Some of you are able to sleep better than others. Some of you can't make A's even if you study more than the best person in the class. This is actually very freeing when you think about it, that God's expectations for you as a Christian are tailored to what, to, to the, the gifts, the abilities, and the magnitudes of those gifts and abilities he's given to you. He doesn't have A-plus expectations of a person he's given C-plus capabilities to. This is also very humbling, right? Because you're like, well, crap, what if I got the C-plus personality or the D-athletic ability <laughs> or whatever else? And some of us have some of us are weaker in more areas, and some of us are stronger in more areas, right? So this is this is very humbling, but all of us have places where we max out our abilities, our capabilities pretty low on the totem pole. Like we can't get that high. Some of us are, are great at a lot of different things. And we have different kinds of struggles than those who are weaker in those areas. But that is not by accident that Jesus is saying here, this one servant has five talents and returns five more talents. He doubles his investment. The other guy has two talents and doubles that investment. And the other guy has one talent. This is not the American, we're all equal, we can all do the same things. If you have a a sibling with uh, cognitive or developmental disabilities or a handicap or something like that, you know this already. You don't buy the American BS about, man, you can do whatever you want. No, you can't. And it's actually enslaving to believe that you can do whatever you want you're just not putting in enough effort. America looks at you and it's always disappointed in you cuz you're not meeting its perfect standard of success. God looks at you, I'm not talking about morally we remember last week you must be born again. We're not talking about earning your way to heaven. We're on to a new topic. We're talking about people who are born again. When God looks at you, He is not looking for perfect success. He is looking for faithfulness with what you have been given according to your own ability. And this varies throughout your life too. If you go through a season of depression, guess what? God's expectations, what he's asking from you, changes radically during that season. Getting out of bed in the morning and putting on your clothes might be so amazingly courageous and faithful that all of heaven rejoices whereas your neighbor who's not struggling with depression gets out of bed puts on their pants and it means nothing for them that day that call is very different i find this beautiful that god treats his people this way that he in a sense tailors what he asks from you depending on your abilities and what he has given you this is not framed negatively it's not framed like oh well you i'm sorry you don't have all these things that you really do need All of it is gift, remember? So if you have two gifts or 20 gifts, you're still the recipient of free gifts, right? So notice how Jesus frames it. It's positively framed, not negatively framed. He's not talking about those of you who got screwed and didn't get enough. He's saying there's some of you who, man, in God's mercy and kindness, He has given you all of these gifts, abilities, resources, possessions. And in some of you, He's given you these, they're different. Not better, or in those ways. The master leaves, verse 16. He starts talking about the return, or what these guys did with the investments. The two first servants are the same, right? The one with five, the one with two, they do the same thing. They go and they invest it. And a return comes from their investment. The third one, in verse 18, he receives one talent. It's not so much that he returned one talent that's wrong. It's what he did with the talent. He dug a hole and he buried it there and he hid his master's money. We don't know anything except that's what he did until we read on. Now a long time, the master comes back and he settles up and he says, Hey, I want to see what you did with the money I gave you, with the resources I gave you. Go show me what you did with it. And so the first guy comes back and you know what happens. Master, you gave me Five talents. And look what's happened. It's doubled. second guy says the same thing. The third one is where things go off the rails a little bit. Verse 24. Oh, by the way, notice that the master's encouragement and response is the same for the person who came back with five and the person who came back with two. Remember what I'm saying? God is not comparing you to your neighbor. He's asking and calling forth faithfulness. Not comparative advantage. Did you do better than the person sitting to your left or your right? He's saying, were you faithful with what I gave you according to your abilities? So the master says, well, he says the exact same encouragement to the person who brings double versus the other person. More than double the five person versus the two. So in verse 24, here's the third person. He comes back and he says, "Um, master. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And so I was afraid I went and hid your talent under the ground. Here, take back what's yours or have back what is yours. Now, this is a little bit confusing. Because you're like, is he saying that God is uh, is a hard master reaping where he didn't sow? No. The point is, this person, the reason they dug a hole and buried their thing, the reason they didn't use all of the resources personality traits spiritual gifts possessions they've been given by God the reason they went and basically did nothing with that stuff or hoarded it for themselves is because they believed the master was evil they believed the master was unfaithful so why would they be faithful it's a mentality of this this boss this master has invested nothing in me why would i go invest his stuff He's given me nothing. Why would I bend my life around investing the stuff that he's given me? Why would I bend my life around his mission? When he says, I knew you to be a hard, he's talking about a hard or a rough or a harsh man. Reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scatter no seed. How do you reap? How do you harvest where you didn't plant? That's theft, right? The way you harvest where you didn't plant is you take someone else's crops. How do you gather where you didn't scatter any seed? You take what's not yours. This third servant believes the master to be evil, harsh, demanding, unreasonable, thieving, taking life, not giving it. And therefore, he says, I was afraid or literally I was terrified. And so I went and I hid your talent. I was so afraid of your response if I lost this thing that I went and buried it. Now, when Jesus says in verse 26, But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. Notice the question mark at the end of the question Jesus is about to ask. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Jesus is not saying, "I Yes, you've described me rightly. He's doing this rhetorically saying, You, you thought I was an evil master? Okay, let's, take, let's assume that's true. Let's play devil's advocate. Okay, so I'm an evil master. Even if I was, why didn't you go invest it in the bank where at least I'd get interest? For the Jew, like, did you know that charging interest on money was illegal for the Jews? God forbade it in the Old Testament, part of the Levitical law. You're not allowed to charge interest on money. That's not loving, he says. If your brother needs money, loan him the money free of charge. He'll insist that he pays you back. There was was recourse if he didn't pay you back. But you weren't supposed to charge interest. Jesus is saying, assume that I'm the evil guy you think I am. Assume I'm even a a lawbreaker. I'm, I'm a bad Jew. I'm not even following God's law. I'm charging interest. Assume the worst about me. You still didn't use your resources for the sake of the master or others. You had no thought about anybody else but yourself. And it's important you realize the heart beneath slothfulness and laziness and fruitlessness in the kingdom of God isn't just that, I want to kind of, I've been busy this week, I need to take a break. That's not the heart that's beneath that. The heart that's beneath slothfulness, laziness, fruitlessness in the kingdom, refusing to bend your life around God's life, is that you think God is evil, You're suspicious of him, that he has invested nothing in you, so why should you invest your life in him? That he's a harsh master demanding the impossible of you. And it pisses you off, you resent him. Right? I lived most of my life with this mentality. I was just angry at God because I'm like, he is demanding things of me I can't possibly provide. And he's invested nothing in me. Of course I was, I was just as wrong about the master as this third servant is wrong about Jesus in this parable you know what it was that softened my heart and opened my eyes it's as through my late college years God began to open my eyes to his generosity to how much he had invested in me I'm not I'm talking about the whole shebang I'm not, about, I'm not just saying investing his mercy in me through Jesus the gospel I'm talking about everything the family I grew up in The scholarships I had at school, the the traits, the characteristics, the strengths, the abilities, the experiences, the education that I had, all of it is gift from God. doesn't matter where you are with God, it doesn't change the nature of what you've received from Him. Scripture says God makes the sun to shine on both the righteous and the unrighteous. He causes His rain to fall on the field of both the wicked and the righteous. Rain is a gift. Sun is a gift. It doesn't matter where you are with God, whether you believe He's there or not. I I was not a Christian. I did not love God. I hated Him. I was suspicious of His character. And yet, for those decades, I was the recipient of daily mercy. He kept my heart beating. He kept putting air in my lungs. He kept me alive through the night. So many near brushes with death through the years that He spared me from. That's what began to soften my heart. He has provided for me. He's taken care of me. He's invested in me. He shared His resources with me even while I was His enemy. That began to shift my heart and my attitude towards Him and soften me. His grace began to soften me and prepare me for His gospel, which is the ultimate investment of God in His enemies. Investment of His own life. Investment of all that he has, all that he is, for your prosperity. That's what's so bad about the third servant. He thinks God is evil. And so him and God, or him and his master, are in a tug of war. I will not give my life away. I will not give my money away. I will not give my wisdom away, my time away. I will not not share my car. I will not use my house for the sake of other people. I will not use my leadership abilities or my administrative abilities or my musical abilities for the edification of others or the expansion of your kingdom. Forget it. It's a wicked heart that's beneath that. That's why Jesus says at the end of this passage, were you thrown off by this? You're like, dang, that's harsh. Verse 29 and 30, you're like, whoa, that's out of left field. Especially verse 30 says, cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's how Jesus describes hell throughout the New Testament. He's saying, What you do with all the gifts God has given you is the proof, it's the evidence of whether there's life in your heart or death in your heart. Whether you've been, to use the language of last week, born again to new life. Or whether you're dead in your sins. Jesus is talking in an ultimate sense that this person, there was never any life there. There was never any union with God. There was never a sense of needing God's mercy. That's why the judgment that comes in verse 30 comes there. But the evidence of that lifelessness is a life spent on self. That leaves no wake of blessing or fruitfulness or encouragement for anybody else. It was a life completely poured out for me. It was life's about my success, not about me stewarding what God has given me for your sake, for the world's sake, to participate in God's renewal of everything. That's what Jesus is drawing out through this parable. The positive call of this as we end is how he does call you to invest All that he's given you. I've already rattled off several times what I mean when I say the things he's given you, right? There's intangible things, there's tangible things. Spiritual gifts, physical, made out of metal or plastic gifts. All of it is what he's talking about when he says, where are you investing it and who benefits from that investment? And is any return coming from that investment? Is there any exponential impact from that Are you doing multiplication or merely addition? Are you asking yourself, where can I get the biggest bang for God's buck? God gave me this car. How can I use it for His glory? doesn't mean you become Jesus' Uber driver and everyone and and their mother gets a free ride from you whenever they call. But it probably does mean when you're getting to know someone and they say, the reason I don't go to church is I never have a ride. Or the reason I'm so stressed is that I have to, like, plan two weeks ahead of time who's going to drive me to Walmart to get groceries. You step in and you say, I have a car. How about we go every Sunday afternoon to Walmart? I'll just, I'll rearrange my shopping with your shopping. That's investing the resources you've been given for the sake of the kingdom. When some of you, every single conference RUF has done since I've been here, summer or fall, I've had people come and say, I can't go, here's a check so that someone else can go. Or people say, here's some money to help this other person be able to go. That's investing money God gave you that's not yours to see his kingdom come. When you have been through suffering and God has comforted you through books, through psalms, through your own prayer, through other people, you've received that comfort. Investing what you have, that experience of coming through suffering and knowing Jesus is faithful... What it looks to invest in that in a friend is to give it away to someone. You open up. You start talking about your dark valleys that you've been through, how hard it was, and how steady and faithful and patient Jesus was in the midst of that. That's what you investing and in giving away what God has given you looks like. It means with your sin struggle or whatever shameful thing you've been through that you don't talk about with people, investing even that, even your experience with that struggle For the sake of the kingdom means talking about it with someone so that it makes it a little bit safer for them to start talking about the same struggle they have. That is a life given away. That is a life aligned with the mission of God, with the kingdom of God. That's what the third servant, it's so bad about it is, did you catch catch this little throwaway line when he says, here, take what's yours? You see how unaligned his life was with the master's life? How different his agenda was than the master's agenda? He's like, here, this was always your money. I just buried it and forgot about it. Now that you're back, here, take what's yours. It's like total separation. What Jesus is envisioning in his people's lives, that there is an increasing alignment between your agenda and your father's agenda. His desires for the world and yours. His action in the world and your action in your little friend group or your major or your job or your home. That's what it means to invest these things in the lives of those around you. I have a few practical application questions, and we end. What has God made you particularly good at? Some of you are uber competent. You're good at like 50 things, and people notice it. For some of you, it's two or three things you're good at, and you're not good at a lot of other things. We've covered that already, right? The two or three things you are good at, thank God for because they're not from you. And thank God for your friend who has 47 more areas of strength and giftedness than you because didn't you hear Jesus calling this person to share with you, to take their investment and invest it in you, right? That's how this works. What are you good at? That could be used and leveraged strategically to participate in what God's doing in the world, reconciling people to each other and to himself. Are you good at explaining things and teaching? Use it for his kingdom. Are you good at organizing data? Use it for his kingdom. Do you have a lot of money or in a few years will you be gifted one of those people who's, who's really good at making a ton of money? Will you use that money for other people's sake or will you go to the grave with a bunch of worthless, useless money? What are you good at that you can use to serve other people? Second question, are you hanging out with people who are helping you connect these dots? How can you live more strategically in this life? How can you take and use what God has given you for the sake of his kingdom and other people? Are you with friends right now who are helping you think through your life in that way? If you're not, find those friends. Be those friends. And if your friends have never had any inkling of these things, ditch those friends. Why are you with them? They're holding you back. They're perpetuating in you this personal success paradigm, not a stewardship paradigm. Where and in what ways can you give God the biggest bang for his buck? Some things you're doing, you probably shouldn't be doing because other people are better at it. And there's not much return on investment coming. You should be doing some other thing that you're especially good at or that he's given you resources to do. There might have to be some repentance and some of this means, asking yourself, what changes do I need to make in my schedule to better leverage what I do have and what I am good at? The last thing is this. No matter whether you have one gift or a thousand, thank Jesus because he has filled a trailer full of life-saving supplies and healing and grace and gospel that the world desperately needs. Concern yourself with just backing up, hitching up to that trailer, whether it's one gift or a thousand gifts in there, and drive it out and deliver it to the people who need it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given your church gifts. We thank you that you have given us gifts. We thank you that you freed us from the tyranny of competing with each other and saying, well, I got five and you only got two or feeling crushed because we've never gotten five and only gotten two. Thanks for freeing us from that. Thanks for making us interdependent. Thanks for letting us participate with you as you renew the world and make all things right again. We pray that you would deliver all of us from the heart of the third servant who suspects you of being an evil Life-taking Master, we pray that we would see that you have invested in us with your very life and your mercy. Make that true in all of us tonight, we pray in your name. Amen.